I will go. I will go when the fighting is over to the land of McLeod that I left to be a soldier. I will go. I will go. When we landed on the shore and saw the foreign heather, we knew that some would fall and would stay there forever. When we came back to the glen, winter was turning, our goods lay in the snow and our houses were burning. I will go. I will go. That is the platoon song for the Scots Guards. In the platoon that uh, Captain Robert Lawrence MC served in and uh, fought in the Falklands War. Uh, welcome to the Code Life podcast with me, Cole Beach, and my great mate, Nathan Blackaby. So today we're going to look at a story um, of this guy who had an incredible, uh, devastating injury. And we, uh, in the Falklands conflict, and for those listening who don't know much about the Falklands conflict, because it was in 1982, uh, I can remember watching this on the news when I was a kid. This is, this is the description online. The Falklands War was a 10-week undeclared war between Argentina and the, and the United Kingdom in 1982 over two British dependent territories in the South Atlantic. The Falkland Islands and its territorial dependency, South Georgia and the South Sandwich Islands, the conflict began on the 2nd of April when Argentina invaded and occupied the Falkland Islands, followed by the invasion of South Georgia the next day. And on the 5th of April, the British government tasked and dispatched the Naval ta Task Force to engage Argentine Navy and Air Force before making an amphibious assault on the island. The conflict lasted 74 days and ended with an Argentinian surrender on 14th of June, returning the islands to British control. In total, 649 Argentine military personnel, 255 British military personnel, and three Falkland Islands died during the hostilities. And uh, essentially this task force, um, which was the British response, uh, was unprecedented. Submarines, uh, HMS Splendid and Spartan were ordered to sail. The Royal Fleet Auxiliary was mobilised. Our aircraft carrier was mobilised. And um, we sent out the Marines, the Paras, and the Guards, and uh, various other elements of our special forces, etc., uh, to to take the islands back. Um, there's many stories that came out of the Falklands, um, but in particular, what I wanted to do today was focus in on on this particular story because it, there was a BBC drama made of it. Yeah. Um, but it, it's it's quite something. It centres around. Uh, the Battle of Tumbledown. Right. The book I'm going to read from is called When the Fighting is Over. And that's what the BBC drama, Colin Firth, starred in it. Love it. Uh, that's what the book was called. Isn't it? It's a, an amazing uh, programme on TV. You could probably get it on YouTube or something. Yeah. Let me read this. This is page 23, chapter called Tumbledown Mountain. I'm going to read extensively from this book today, but then we can really just chop and chop it about as we go along. Right. The battle for Tumbledown Mountain was set for the night of 13th, 14th June. I heard later that the original brigade plan had been to attack by day. Had we done that, there is no doubt in my mind that the Argentinians would have killed us all on the approach. Their positions on the other side, the Stanley side of Mount Tumbledown, were very strong. Following their defeat by the Paris at Darwin and Goose Green about a fortnight earlier, these positions were the Argentinians' last ring of close defence and were on high ground outside Port Stanley. To finish the job in the Falklands, it was obviously vital for us to attack these final positions 
and take them. Yeah. Helicopters took us up initially to Goat Ridge, and from here a valley separated us from Tumbledown. Almost as soon as we began to dig in, we came under Argentinian artillery bombardment, which was quite something. The Argentinians had no observation posts to see precisely where their shells were landing. They were just hoping to hit British troops at some point. Listening to our casualty reports over their radios would tell them that when they'd hit someone and indicate where they should concentrate their fire. You don't realise all this happened, see? No. A shell landed by the trench occupied by Sergeant McGeorge and Corporal Campbell, who were in my company. Corporal Campbell had taken his webbing off to dig and it caught fire, sending white phosphorus grenades everywhere, which everyone thought was rather funny at the time. <laughs> and then Sergeant McGeorge got a piece of shrapnel up his ass. <laughs> and everyone thought that was even funnier. Sergeant McGeorge, such a warrior-like guy, having to be pulled out of battle because of a piece of shrapnel up his bum. During that day, we continued to come under quite heavy shelling, but we also got the chance to crawl up the hill above us in separate groups and saw tumble down just vaguely in the distance, and through our binoculars, we could see the Argentinian position we were going to attack. Despite slight nerves at this point, morale was fairly high. We had a sense we were actually about to go and do a real job. Up until then, our biggest fear had been that we were going to have to spend more weeks sitting around in trenches, becoming progressively, progressively colder, more miserable. We came across some paras who had been at Goose Green and Darwin earlier, I grabbed one and couldn't resist asking, what's it like? Um, he said, it's pretty nasty, but get within 200 metres of them and they'll run away. And if you hit a machine gun sanger with an anti-tank weapon, it will stop. I believed all that right until we actually got to Tumbledown. It was only then that we discovered that the troops of Paris had fought and captured at Goose Green in the Argentinians outering the defence were mostly teenage conscripts. The troops we were to face at Tumbledown, however, were extremely well-trained and well-equipped Marines in their mid-twenties who had had recent fighting experience in the Argentinian Civil War. They had had years of aggression. They were well used to it. People like me, on the other hand, only weeks previously had been doing the changing of the guard at Buckingham Palace. Mm -hmm. Not exactly the greatest experience of fighting a war in some godforsaken little island in the middle of nowhere. Just before we move on, mm. in that that is an interesting uh, little bit of history there, and maybe an interesting life lesson. I thought. I mean, the, the, essentially, the Paris and Marines are are shock troops, combat troops, attack dog regiment. Yeah. Yeah. They sent they sent them against the conscripts, and they sent uh, people trained for household guard duties against the more experienced troops. Now. Yeah. Two two things there. One is, do we send the right people to do the right job? Mm. And uh, are we prepared properly for the battle that we're facing at the moment? Mm. The gospel battle. It's interesting that they got it round the wrong way, isn't it? <laughs> it's a bit of a mistake, isn't it? Yeah. But are we sending? Do we send the right people out there now to do the job? Are the right people being trained to lead churches? Are the right people being trained out to do evangelism? How, how, what we, how are we equipping people? Who are we deploying? It's a question. Yeah, it's a good one. We'll think on it as we read on. Yeah. I'll miss out a chunk of stuff, but back to the book. 
We had been told there was a machine gun post at the foot of Tumbledown, plus about a battalion of Argentinians, and they, they were very, very good. At night, we crossed the start line of Goat Ridge, and I met up with the adjutant, Mark Bullo. He had a walking stick with him, and again, I thought it was a classic sort of eccentricity that you expect to see in war films. Mm. Hello, Robert, he said, poking me in the chest. You do well, but keep your head down. It's very British, isn't it? Yeah. We shook out into our positions and came under artillery and mortar fire. Shells whistled over our heads. And because it was night, we could see the flash of the explosion before we heard the bang. And then the battle starts. Uh, let me read from this bit here. Actually, picking it up. Richard planned to get his men to a position about two or three hundred yards away from the Argentinians and then to open fire on them like hell, whether he was killing them or not, to cause a diversion. When he reached his chosen spot and looked through his individual weapons site, IWS, which enabled him to see at night, he couldn't see any Argentinians. He and his men carried on a bit further, but still couldn't see where the Argentinians were. And a bit further on, however, he suddenly heard snoring. And looking down, saw there were three Argentinian trenches right in front of him, and they had walked right up to them. Unfortunately, at that moment, a loud radio signal blasted out over Richard's headset. The first Argentinian to wake up opened fire with his FN rifle on automatic and killed Drill Sergeant Danny White with a bullet through the forehead. Danny, who only weeks earlier had been on the ceremony of the keys with me. The Argentinian also put two bullets through Richard's hood and killed the Royal Engineer Sergeant who had been on Richard's left. Richard opened up with a Bren gun. One Argentinian, even while riddled with bullets, managed to get a grenade out, which put shrapnel up Richard's leg and cut his jacket clean in half like a knife. Wow. Richard turned to pick up Danny, who was about six foot eight and started running out with his other men as more Argentinians woke up and began firing at them. They ran into a minefield where Danny had to be left, and my guardsman with trench foot got rid of his trench foot as quickly as you can imagine by standing on a mine and having his leg blown off. That was a diversionary attack. It was, in fact, very successful. The first third of Tumbledown, G companies, seemed to have no Argentinians on it at all. For ages, no fighting started in front of us, and we thought, oh no, here we go again. We're going to get onto Tumbledown, there aren't going to be any Argentinians left there. Then left flank started doing a central third with face of extreme fighting, the worst sort of resistance you can imagine, hand-to-hand -hand fighting, bayonets, the works. Seven of their men were killed. Eventually, they fought their way through the third, commanded by Major John Kaisley, who did an incredible job in horrific circumstances and subsequently won a military cross. This had been out-and-out -out battle, the fullest possible fighting, and constituted the main part of the battle for Tumbledown. I was somewhere at the back of all this, wondering what the hell was going on. It was bloody cold. Really, really cold. So cold that I thought I was going to die. Oh. I remember one stage not being able to move because of it. Not being able to vaccinate myself to keep moving. And I just sat there behind a rock, getting colder and colder. Then my platoon sergeant came along and started kicking the boys and kicking me to get us going again. I honestly think I would have sat there and died if it had not been for him. That, wow. That's cold. Right flank were called up to join them, and as we were making our way along, we found a dead Scots Garza, and his body had been marked by a rifle stuck in the ground with a beret placed on top of it. It was harrowing, but it also made us angry, and it inspired us to push on all the harder. And stumbling over the scree, I came across some of the Argentinian tents, which didn't seem to have been cleared by left flank. At least there weren't any holes in them. I decided to check them over myself, and I cut open the sides of the bayonet, and they stank to high heaven, as if humans had been living in them for months. B.O. socks. The worst. We discovered boxes of highly sophisticated night sights in the tents, which we hadn't believed the Argentinians had. 
Time and time again, we've been told how poorly equipped they were supposed to be. And yet here were third generation night sites, the absolute top grade, more advanced than the ones we had ourselves. It made us wonder what lay ahead. Mm. As we pushed on, I remember coming across a very young officer from the left flank who'd only recently joined a battalion who'd been caught in a back blast of an 84 millimeter anti-tank weapon. He's been looked after behind a rock by two guardsmen and was crying his eyes out. His sergeant had died in his arms. Don't go on, he said to me. It's too horrific. You're better off turning around and shooting anyone who tried to stop you going back. He was suffering from shock. I realised, but at the time I just thought, rather unsympathetically, how unprofessional and pushed on. After the war, I was delighted to learn that he'd received a mention in dispatches. At that moment, I forgot the cold. I was extremely excited. And I made up my mind there and then that I would never later be saying to myself, if I'd only done this or that at the time, I was really going to go for it. Yes, I told myself, whatever happens, I'm really going to go for it now. Mm. This is, we'll carry on in a moment, but this is the unfolding story of the, the true horrors of war. Yeah. One minute, we just want to go and do the job. Next minute, thinking I'll freeze to death on a rock. See, I've, I've been cold before. You know, when you're like deep bone cold, where you think this is awful, but never to that point where you think I could actually die at this point. I mean, that... That's got to be so miserable sitting there in that cold, isn't it? But he's obviously he's feeling all his strength leaving as yeah, well. Yeah. But somehow, you know, that guy comes along and gives him a kick. And he would have, he would have just sat there without it. How much, how, how much is life like that for us? Yeah. Not the same. No, but there are times when you get stuck in a rut, definitely. And someone will come along and one way or another, give you a kick and get you moving again. Yeah, mate, that's brutal though. That see, Hollywood and films. I know they try and capture the severity and and the yeah the the misery of war, but it's it's only in these real life accounts that you get a glimpse of just how horrible and miserable it is. There's some interesting stuff coming up about what it is actually like to to face this horror. Yeah, um, I, I do think there's something in there about giving each other a kick when we need it. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes you don't want to pick yourself up. This is this is obviously war fighting, but there's a war over our marriages, our kids. Yeah, absolutely. And, and one of the things I like, about it, it, sound, it sounds odd, but one of the things I like about it is, is you've got this sense of brotherhood. And I feel like for, for so many men, that can be lost on us. And I'm not, I'm not saying war's glamorous or anything like that, but, but fighting alongside someone, in, in, okay, in this instance, it's on the Falklands, but in lots of ways, and even spiritually, fighting alongside together is really significant, I think. And, and a lot of blokes miss that because we're on our own. We're trying to do our own thing. And, and I don't know. I just think it's really... It's hard right now, isn't it? Yeah. 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 I was, I was doing a podcast the other night. Someone got me doing and. He, he said a, a guy in his church, like, as soon as lockdown happened, he'd lost his job and his girlfriend left. And he just didn't have anyone to turn to. And I think there's loads of blokes like that. And that's why I, I really love what CVM does in terms of our men's groups. And, and the ethos and the, the DNA of, of us lot standing together is, I think it's yeah. essential. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, our friendship's got, got, got us through to a degree, is it? Talking regularly and hanging yeah, out. Yeah, absolutely, mate. And 
and calling stuff out and and at times being we all need to kick, don't we? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Back to the book. Not far down the gully, I collected a rifle with an IWS on it. I saw some Argentinians moving positions across the back of tumble down and I picked off about four of them. I then radioed to James Dalrymple's platoon, who were joining left flank to add fire protection, and I asked him to put some fire down on the Argentinian machine gun post so that we could see where it was. I also hoped their fire would keep the Argentinians' heads down while we came in on the attack. The minute we started leading our assault in, however, the machine gun post saw us coming and switched his fire onto us. We hit the ground at about the time Mark's platoon was coming up level with us and then tried to return fire. I began crawling forward on my own for about 40 or 50 feet and remember feeling desperately scared. There were bullets flying everywhere from James' platoon on my left, from the Argentinians ahead and from my own guys behind. And the bullets were all ricocheting off the rocks. This is it, I thought. This is the end. And as I continued to crawl along, I tried to make myself disappear into the ground, face right into the dirt. Mm. Eventually, I got behind a rock and attempted to pull the pin out of a white phosphorus grenade. I'd never used such a grenade before and discovered that they have very heavy-duty pins. I should have ensured they had been pre-prepared with a pair of pliers so I could get the bloody things out. Instead, I had to crawl back again under all this fire to Corporal Simpson. He held the pin. I held the grenade. And together we got the thing out. See, that, that's not what you see in the movies. Mate, that's mental. <laughs> Call forward under fire. Now it's got to go back. Help me pull this pin out. <laughs> oh, dear. Holding the safety lever of the grenade down, I then had to crawl all the way back to my original position and screamed at my men to reduce their fire. And I hurled the thing into the air and the grenade went straight into the machine gun post and blew up. I took off and screamed at my men to follow me. In that instant, my one sudden thought was, are they going to follow me? Or will I be left off to run on my own? But when I glanced around, there was this unbelievably fantastic sight of every man getting up and running in. I remember thinking to that moment, this was life on a knife edge. Yeah. Amazing. Fantastic. Nothing would ever bother me again from then on. If I got back to London and found out that my flat had burned down, it would be a totally insignificant in event in comparison to this experience. The other thing that occurred to me was that people just don't die in real life like they do on television. <laughs> if a man is shot, a bit of him might come off, but he doesn't drop immediately. He just carries on coming. It takes an enormous amount to kill a man. Usually he has to be shot three or four times before he dies. Yeah. yeah There's a lot yeah. in that battle. Imagine the exhilaration of that moment. Uh, you're living your life on the edge. You charge and you look around and every man's with you. Yeah. There's a lot we could say about that. Yeah, there is. Yeah, that's that's significant. That and the, and the, he, bef he he didn't have the reassurance that they were all going to be with him. He just went for it. Yep. And that's quite something to actually go and then look and go. Oh, are they coming? But they were. Lead a charge. Do something. And and charge with your brothers. Yeah. When you see a man out in front. Get alongside him. Don't pull him down. Yeah. How many times have we said no friendly fire? Yeah. Oh, absolutely, mate. Absolutely. Especially within your own team. You know, you, you've got to know you've got each other's backs. And that's something we're really tight on, is that when stuff is said or, or however it might come around, that there seems to be a disunity, we always call it out real quick and make sure it's not any disunity. Because right. that's a real... 
a real danger zone. But but the idea that what he said there, living life on a knife edge to the point where nothing really after that would even phase him, I think that's significant because there's part of me, and again, this I'm not trying to romanticise war here, but there's part of me that longs for that that knife edge kind of moment. Because yeah. I, I think so many blokes, right. me included, we, we get this sort of malaise or this veneer of just normality on our lives where you think, actually, to run at machine gun nest, I mean, all right, you might die, but that's the point. Like, it's something that will put you on a knife edge. It's do or die. And I think so many of us are just, I don't know, you don't get that, do you? Commuting into London or not every man, Not every man is designed for peacetime. No, no. And there are some of us out there that are craving for that kind of action, to be fair. And and I'm not saying I want to join up and charge a machine gun this, but I'm saying there's something about that moment that tests you, that says, I, what are you? What are you made of? What are you made of? Hello, trouble. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but there are loads of blokes out there, the fighters, blokes who want to scrap, blokes who, you know, and I'm not, again, not saying that fighting's right, but it's vented. And but How do we channel this into yeah. realities? Exactly. The everyday life of walking a narrow path of Christ. Exactly, exactly, mate. Living yeah. life on the knife edge for the gospel. Yeah. Well, and the narrow path puts us in that place, doesn't it? I'm going to read a bit now, which is, it gets gruesome. Yeah, cool. But I, but I think face the reality of what these guys went through. I'm not going to yeah. chop it out. It's a, it's a men's podcast for adult men. So deal with it. Here we go. Deal with it. So they take some prisoners. There were numerous Argentinians in the machine gun post. So wearing American style uniform, big green parkas, webbing over the top. I remember searching my first prisoner frantically for a Colt 45 pistol because I wanted one as a souvenir. <laughs> yeah, there you go. The horrible thing about having a first prisoner is that it's rather like being a man with a snake. Snakes are quite probably more terrified of humans than humans ever believe they are. The same applies to prisoners. I was terrified that the prisoner might suddenly do something fast and clever and kill me, but that he would do something that meant I'd have to kill him. That's an appalling tension. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'd know about Feeling that. that any minute the horror could all suddenly erupt again. We've just been trying to kill each other. Yeah. There were panics and we asked Argentinians to put their hands up and went on clutching their rifles in the pandemonium. We'd scream, drop your F-bomb Bible. Mm. Rifle, not Bible. Rifle. <laughs> but they just didn't understand us. Um, just as the assault appeared to come to a grinding halt, we were suddenly dealing with the wounded and the prisoners. We came under sniper fire from the crates above us. There was a danger we'd all get picked off there and then, so we moved away. I grabbed two of my guardsmen who went set off around Stanley and the Tumbledown, we stepped around a craggy rock and the whole bloody world seemed to explode. Gunfire, grenades, explosions, booby traps, everything erupted the other side of this rock. So we quickly jumped back. Yeah. Guards and Pengeli, who was with me, started climbing up the rock to try and reach the top and get at one of the sniper positions. As he was climbing, he was hit and fell back down again, wounded but not killed. I felt I had to keep momentum going. I grabbed two or three people, including Corporal Rennie and Sergeant McDermott, and went round the other end of the rock, and we started skirmishing down, one guy moving on while the other guy covered him. Again, I remember thinking, this is just like the movies. By now, it was just becoming daylight, and among the grass and rocks, I saw an Argentinian lying face down with his arms back. 
I thought to myself, is he dead or alive? But instead of just kicking or prodding him, I stuck my bayonet into the back of his arm and dug it right in because I had to run out of ammunition. He spun wildly on the ground and my bayonet snapped. And as he spun, he was trying to get a Colt 45 out of an army holster on his waist. So I had to stab him to death. I stabbed him and I stabbed him again and again in the mouth, face, guts with a snap bayonet. It was horrific, absolutely horrific. Stabbing a man to death is not a clean way to kill somebody. What made it doubly horrific was at one point he started screaming, please, in English to me. But had I left him, he could have ended up shooting me in the back. When I finally did leave him, I took his FN rifle, moved on, shot a sniper, picked up his FN and moved on again. I was moving on with other men when suddenly Garzman McTaggart turned to me and said, excuse me, sir, I think I've been shot. I thought, don't be stupid. If you've been shot, you'd know all about it. He had, in fact, been grazed by a bullet in the upper arm. Excuse me, sir, I think I've been shot. <laughs> <laughs> I still desperately wanted to push on at this stage and get to the Argentine administration and supply area at the very end of Tumbledown. Once we'd taken that, we would have taken the whole mountain. Mm. It was also in the direction of Stanley, the goal we were heading for. Men from different platoons behind me were dealing with the wounded and prisoners. I was aware as I moved along of other people coming up behind me, taking various routes. So it goes on. I remember seeing the lights of standing below us and thinking how strange it, how strange it hadn't been blacked out. This was supposed to be a war. I turned to guards and taggarts who went along and for some inexplicable reason suddenly cried out, isn't this fun? Seconds later it happened. I felt a blast in the back of my head. I felt more as if I'd been hit by a train than a bullet. It was a high velocity bullet, in fact, traveling at a speed of 3,800 feet per second. And the air turbulence and shockwave traveling with it caused so much damage. I found this out later. At the time, all I knew is that my knees had gone and I collapsed, totally paralyzed to the ground. And it's at this moment, he was shot in the head. I lost five pints of blood, the temperature was sub-zero, the wind chill factor bringing it even lower, and there's a fierce blizzard. I was running where the sleeping bags, the platoon were meant to be coming for casualties, and where the hell was the helicopter that was meant to come and pick me up? Um, to cut to the chase, he lost 41% of his brain. He was lying on a battlefield for two and a half hours. They didn't think he'd survive. And then he was still on uh, the Falkland Lines in a temporary medical facility, hospital tent type thing for days. This is what it says, back to the book. I was flown to the field hospital Fitzroy, which is a converted refrigeration plant. Casualties were divided into three categories that they could save if they worked quickly. Those they could save if they could afford to wait a bit longer and those who were probably gonna die. I was put on a drip and stuck at the back of the queue mm. in the last category. The system made sense. There was no point spending six and a half hours working on a man who was gonna die. When they cut off my smock, a grenade fell out of it and hit the ground. There was a bit of panic and a scuffle, but the pin was still in it. I think I found it vaguely amusing. Then I remember they found a Colt 45. One of the orderlies handed it to someone else. He said, it's loaded, but it's not made ready. And for some ridiculous reason, I felt reassured by that. He made me think he knew what he was doing, even though it wasn't arms he was meant to know how to deal with, and my injury. They operated on me for a while afterwards, stopping the blood loss and removing obvious dead tissue and bits of dirt and muck. 
and they packed the wound full of antiseptic gel, stretched my scalp over the hole. A piece of skull about four and a half by three and a half inches had gone, but the split in the scalp made by the bullet's air turbulence went cleanly back together again. The operation lasted seven hours in all. I was conscious through most of it. It did in fact seem quite quick, and I was thrilled that somebody was doing something somewhere to help me. <laughs> I should say at this point, and I think I said at the beginning, this guy's still alive. Oh yeah. <laughs> but, so he, he, he's just in this moment of obviously battlefield intoxication, I think. Shout out, it's fun. And then, done. And it, it's the, what grabbed me about that was two things. Well, probably three. One, the horror of the reality of war. Yeah. He's stabbing that guy to death. He's pleading with him. The way he writes, you can tell he's, there's no glory in that. No, and, no. And we're not glorifying it. It's, it's horrific. Absolutely not. Yeah. Um, the second thing that struck me on those passages was, was the fact how, how he felt reassured being operated on because the orderly knew how to handle a gun. So there's something in that. There's something yeah. about being with people who, who you're confident in. Yeah. Who've got your back. Yeah, knowing there's that they're something there. In, there's something in that. Yeah. Um, but the, uh, and I, I guess the, um, the final thing that really, really struck me about this was the fact that he, he, uh, he's not lost his sense of humour. <laughs> which which that's a bit that's baffling me. It's like, how can you lose that much brain? Still be alive, still be processing thought and and even having a bit of a joke. Yeah. He's <laughs> he's 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 made of something different, isn't he? This guy. Yeah, yeah. He's he's <laughs> a lot of a lot of fellas' heads go down too quick, don't they? Yeah, I I can't. Yeah, I mean. You're, I guess your average bloke, having diagnosed that you've just been shot in the head and you're laying on a on a war field somewhere, you're going to think, I'm done. Yeah. Aren't you? You're just going to think, I'll turn a bullet on myself if I've got the strength or just bleed out. But somehow, he, he, oh, I don't know. Yeah, it's quite staggering, that. Let me, let me close out the reading part of this podcast with this. Um, he obviously survives uh, multiple operations. The brain surgery leaves him with these depressing de times of depression. My first session of physio at the Maudsley proved to be a horrific business. Two physiotherapists, relatively young girls, put me on a solid bench bed and attempted to teach me to sit up. Owing to the paralysis, however, I just kept collapsing on the left-hand side. Mm. And they dragged in a six-foot mirror they said they were putting it in front of me so they could see what happened, even if I could not feel it. What I did not realise is that probably the last time I looked in the mirror was on a QET on the way down to the Falklands. When I saw my reflection this time, what I saw looking back at me absolutely freaked me. I had gone from 12 and a half stones to just under eight in three weeks. Wow. The gash in my head looked grotesque and my mouth was incessantly dribbling. I reminded myself of charity posters I'd seen for the mentally handicapped and later I could joke about it to Gavin. But at that first moment, I went berserk and started to cry. 
and scream. I turned to two girl physios and went into this incredibly emotional diatribe about what it was like killing people and having your friends killed. It was a classic Vietnam syndrome. Who the hell are you? You weren't there. You can't know what I'm talking about. You don't know what it's like. During this eruption, the hospital chaplain happened to be passing by. He waited until I completely finished and then simply said, I'm very privileged to have heard that emotional outburst. And I just gaped at him. Hmm. Obviously, he was told he'd never walk again. But uh, he, he he does. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And he, uh, he's uh, kids and got uh, married and uh, went on to live his life and he's still alive today. And I think, I believe he's working in the uh, film industry for a while, may even still be now, but now uh, runs something called Global Adventures. Some uh, It's got another name to it, attached to Global Adventures, but they rehabilitate soldiers with adventure trips. Wow. So, um, Amazing, uh, mate. I was looking at I was looking up some Google images while you were reading that of like Falkland Islands and these guys. Yeah, bleak. I mean, it's it's hard to picture, but these barren mountain tops and little crests and like nothing growing, just rock. I mean, it's nightmare stuff. But yet you've got this story of survival and endurance and brotherhood and yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? So, uh, there he is. Is that him? Yeah. After the injury. Wow. Yeah. So the, the book's called When the Fighting is Over. And there's, there's lots of reflections in here about brotherhood, human spirit, survival, horror. Yeah. It's well worth a read. But one of the things that just strikes me in it, or as we've been talking it's just is the way he got confidence from some people, that sergeant who gave him a kick, yeah. the human spirit that just fought to survive. He, he never gave up the thought that he could uh, make it. But then the second part of the book is all about the, his indomitable spirit of overcoming and teaching himself to walk again and overcoming huge periods of depression and trauma. Yeah. And, and, and so we, we haven't got time to go into all of that today, but it's just well worth a read. But one major reflection for me is every man needs someone to give him a kick and every man needs his back covered and every man needs to know when he's going to go on a charge he's got a few blokes to charge with him yeah so how do, how do we encourage guys to find those blokes those wingmen and i mean obviously in our church networks there's always guys about the, in a similar boat going through similar stuff and um, we've got the men's groups at cvm but it is, it's vital isn't it mate to, to be proactive someone's got to go first yeah. Isn't they? Yeah. Someone's got to go first. So I need this. Would you Would you guys consider meeting with me? Yeah. And I think if you've got a group of uh, four or five, uh, there's always going to, should be always three of you to meet. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm, in, I'm in a group where there's three of us, but we're pretty, pretty determined to keep meeting. But I think in a church group, four or five guys, but you, you can, trust takes time to build. It's not going to be there from day one. You've got a journey together. Yeah. A bit, and you've got to do some stuff together, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. We were yeah. talking about when we were able to getting on the bikes or going off in the truck and doing something, didn't we? And Absolutely, mate. Because the relationships come out of overcoming stuff together, going through life together, walking through rubble together. I mean, we've, yeah. we've walked through some rubble together, haven't we? Yeah, we have. 
And you're right, it is the journey, the shared journey. Yeah. You get those, the battle stories, don't you? You're not going to get it by pitching up just at a men's breakfast. Nah. No. No, you've got to get involved. Yeah, do a bit of life together, that's what I think. That's it, mate. And hopefully, as time goes on, we're starting to see a bit of a relax on the old rules and yeah. start meeting up a bit more. That's it. That's rich, mate. It's a good podcast, that. Yeah. Thanks for listening, guys. And don't forget, we've got the gathering online coming up. Yeah, 26th to 27th of June. Be the there. Yeah, yeah we'll, there's much more on that coming out on social media. When you hear this podcast, do share it with your friends. Spread the links all, uh, on all the different channels. Yeah. YouTube, Spotify. Let people know and uh, spread the word. But thanks for listening.